The scripture passage for Pastor Charlie's sermon this morning is 1 John 2, verses 7 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is the new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling." But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, that song, Amazing Grace, was just exactly the right note to strike before the sermon today. John is going to lay some heavy things before us today. He's going to challenge us to think about what it means to really walk and to live as Christian people. And so I thank you that the theme that you have struck and that indeed he strikes in his letter is that all of these things are possible and only possible by the amazing grace of God through Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, without your grace, none of us would have hope. Without your grace, all of us would be lost in our sin. We'd be lost in the darkness. We'd be given over to hatred and only to hatred. But because of the great and mighty things that you have done in Jesus Christ, the love has overcome the hatred, and the light has outshined the darkness, and mercy has triumphed over our sin. Oh God, how we thank you for this. How we praise you for your grace in Jesus Christ. And how I pray that you would make your word live for us now, Lord. May the words just leap off the page like we had never read them before. I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would cause them to apply to each one of our lives. And I pray pray that each of us would walk out of here changed people with particular to-dos coming out of this, Father. Please use your word like a surgeon's scalpel to do your surgery on us and to shape us into your image. Oh, how I love you and how I publicly declare that my trust is in you and in you alone. Please come now, Lord, and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John tells us in 1 John 1, 3-4 that he is writing this letter of 1 John 
that we might enter into fellowship with God as well as those who love God, and that by entering into that fellowship, we might know a fullness of joy. And so another way of saying what I just said is that John is writing this letter that we might be happy. He's writing for our happiness. He's fighting for our happiness. And he knows what it will take for us to be truly and deeply and eternally happy. He's not after a sort of superficial happiness for us. He's after a lasting, eternal happiness, a fullness of joy in Jesus Christ. That word fullness means to go all the way up to the brim. So he wants us to learn maximum joy in Christ. And you have to read everything that he writes in First John with that in mind, because that's his aim. And so he begins in chapter 1 by teaching us that if we're to be happy in Christ, we must confront our sin. There's no way to have peace with your sin and to have joy in Christ. The two things are completely incompatible. Worse than oil and water. They will not go together. And so if we're to be happy, we must agree with God about the fact that we have sinned. And John assures us that if we'll do that, God will be faithful and just to forgive us everything we have done and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is great news. If we will simply confess our sins, all of the penalties for what we have done will be washed away in Christ and God will transform us. He will cause us not to want to sin anymore over time. He will remove from us the desire to do the things of the world and He'll transplant in us a desire to do the things of His kingdom. Second thing John brings up in chapter 2, 1 to 6 is that if we're to be happy people, we must be submissive people. We must be a people who obey the commands of God on the basis of the massive the massively important and significant sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is what Mike led us to meditate on and understand a little bit better last week. And on the basis of what Christ has done, God is now saying, come and obey me. And I just think the picture is this. If you say that you love God on the one hand, but then ignore and rebel against everything He says on the other hand, then one thing is for sure, you do not love God. Submission to God is a display of our love for God. And if our submission is missing, then we have to at least question our love. It may not be there at all, or at least we might not be walking in fellowship with the Father. So if we want to be truly happy people, then we must live lives that submit to God. And that's not always easy. Because sometimes God calls us to do things that don't feel very happy at the moment. Yes? There are times when God calls us to do hard things, but He has the end in mind, not just the temporary middle part. It's like I'm training for bike riding now at this time of year, and the training is painful. But the reason I'm willing to go through the pain is because when it comes time to ride our bike across the state of Minnesota, I want to go fast. I want to have the joy of going fast on my bike, and so a little pain now for a lot of joy later. That's how God leads us. A little pain now, but a lot of joy later. And if we're to be happy people, we must submit to Him. John moves on today to talk about loving one another. And the main point that he's going to make is this. We can know that we are in fellowship with God if we're loving one another through God. As I said, fellowship with the Father is where eternal joy resides. And so how do you know if you're in fellowship with God? Well, one test John's going to put before us today is this. 
You can know that you're in fellowship with God if you love one another out of love for God and by the love of God. So we're going to look at the passage that Kevin read for us today in three parts. In verses 7 to 11, we'll see John lay out his main idea. In verses 12 to 14, we're going to see him affirm the people that he's writing to. And then in verses 15 to 17, we'll see him dissuade us away from the things of the world so that we can give ourselves to the love of God and to the love of one another. And again, the main thing we're going to see is that we can know and have confidence that we are in fellowship with God if we are in fact loving one another through God. So in verses 7 through 11, John teaches us that who's ever walking in the light and yet, or at least claims that he's walking in the light and yet hates his brother is in fact not walking in the light. But the one who loves his brother or loves his sister abides in the light and that there is no cause for stumbling in him whatsoever. So let's read those verses again, just 7 through 11. John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandments, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John begins this section by saying something that might seem a little contradictory, so I just want to say a, a word or two about it. He says at one and the same time that he's writing no new commandment to the church, but then he turns right around in the next verse and says what? He says, namely in verse 8, that he's writing a new commandment. So it's an old commandment, and yet it's a new commandment. I just wondered, John, what, what are you talking about? Well, I think on the one hand, he says this is no new commandment, because everything John teaches, just like everything Jesus taught, is rooted in the Old Testament. The, the New Testament does not provide us with new ideas. The New Testament provides us with a fulfillment of very, very old ideas. Everything that happened in Christ and in the early church was already taught about and foretold in the Old Testament. So in a very real sense, everything we will ever teach in this church is no new commandment. It's very, very old. Truth is as ancient as God, right? And the revelation of God is as ancient as the Old Testament. So in a very real sense, this is no new commandment. And beside that, I think John is referring to the fact that he and others had taught these new believers at length about what it meant to be Christians. They had discipled these young believers and taught them the ways of Jesus Christ. And so now John is writing and in a way is saying, listen, I'm not teaching you here in my letter anything that you haven't already heard from me. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. What I'm trying to do is fan into flame the things that are in your heart that you already know. Some confusing teachers have come into your life and you're, you're confused about what to do and which way to go. My purpose here is not to say new things to you, but to stir up old things in you. I want to remind you about what I already taught you. And yet on the other hand, John just has to pause and say, listen though, this is a new commandment that I'm teaching you. And the reason is, there has been a, a fundamental shift in human existence since the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Since the light of Christ broke into the world, something great has happened, and it's made all the old commandments seem new and fresh again. Namely, the darkness has begun passing away, and the true light has already begun to shine. Amen? The kingdom of Satan has not been totally destroyed at this point for whatever reason. God has designed to do that by a process, but beloved, His kingdom is as good as gone. You could say that His kingdom is alive, but already dead. It's gone. The light has come into darkness. I was thinking this morning as the sun rose up, there's just no room for darkness anymore, is there? It is not night outside right now, because the sun is up. And in the same way, Jesus Christ has come into the world and there has been a fundamental shift in human existence. The light is shining and the darkness will not be able to stop that light from shining. Hallelujah. Amen? Because of this, all of the old commandments seem new again. They seem fresh again. They're living in a way they did not live before. They're vibrant in a way they were not before. They are new. They are fresh. They are life-giving, so to speak. Christ the King is now the victor over all things and nothing will stop Him from accomplishing His purposes. Now that we have believed in Jesus Christ, for those of us who have believed, our sins have been wiped away and Satan can no longer accuse us before God and succeed. You see, because Christ has taken away my sin, Satan can accuse me of all kinds of stuff that I have actually done. He can do that. But it won't matter anymore because by the grace of God, Jesus Christ has removed the consequences of my sin. And so all the old commandments live for me again because my failure to keep them won't keep me from God. And another thing, since Jesus Christ has come and we have believed in Him, He has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit in a way that it did not exist before Christ. And so when the Old Testament believers heard certain commands, they heard them, but they did not have the power of the living God living inside of them to help them keep His commandments. And so, indeed, in a very real way, all of the old commandments are vibrant again and alive again and new again and fresh again. And how I pray that they will live for all of us here. Some of you have been walking with Christ for decades. And my prayer for you this morning is that all of this will sound like you have never heard it before because the Holy Spirit will make it live for you. I think John has all of this in mind. Now in verse 9, he begins to get to the heart of what he's teaching and he says that whoever claims to be walking with Jesus Christ, whoever claims to have a relationship with Him, to be a believer, to be a Christian and all that goes with that, and yet hates his brother or sister, that person is actually walking in the darkness. Now the word for brother that John uses here, as I'm sure you know, refers to fellow believers, not to blood relatives. So John is not talking about your love for people who are not saved, whether they're family members or not. John is talking about our love for each other as people who have come to believe in Jesus Christ. And the word brothers refers not only to men, but also to women. I have told you before that in the Greek language, they would often use male or masculine nouns and pronouns to refer to a mixed group of men and women. So the word in Greek is adelphoi. The word for sisters is adelphi. But instead of saying adelphoi, chi, adelphi, they would just say adelphoi, brothers, and they would know that people understood this referred to both men and women. It's the same thing in Spanish, right, Kimmy? With the word hermanos. 
If you say hermanos in a, in a group of mixed people with, with uh, males and females, everybody who understands Spanish knows that you're referring to the whole church. And so what John is saying is that if we claim to be in the light, but we hate our brothers and sisters who are in Christ, we are lying and we are actually walking in the darkness. Now the word hate that he uses is a strong one. It means to detest somebody. It means to despise them. And as you know, this kind of hatred could take a lot of different forms, some of which are quite subtle, right? It's possible to actually hate someone in your heart in a way that's not very visible, and yet the hatred is real, and the hatred is just as putrid in the mind of God as any kind of hatred that expresses itself. And so here are a couple of examples of that. You can have an inner disdain for a person and never actually speak it out loud, and and that's a kind of hatred. You could habitually neglect a person or people around you, and that is a form of hating. You can show preferential treatment to one over another, or to one group over another group, and that is a kind of hatred. You can use demeaning speech, where the Bible says that we should use gracious speech to build one another up. We can use demeaning speech that cuts each other down, and that is a kind of hatred. We can hold a grudge against somebody and refuse to forgive them even though Christ has forgiven us so much. And when we hold a grudge and refuse to forgive that person for the small offenses they have committed against us and even for what we would consider large offenses, what we do is we express hatred toward them and show that at least at that moment we are not walking in the light. Now I know some offenses are much more difficult to forgive than others. But I'm simply saying that the refusal to even think about and pray about forgiving is a sign that you are hating your brother or sister. There are many, many things like this that we could um, spell out this morning. But the point that I'm trying to make is I don't want you to think about hatred as a sort of extreme behavior that none of us really engage in. The truth is that we're engaging in hateful behavior all the time. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of every single thing on this list on a regular basis. I hate my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't like it, but I must confess that that is true. This is something we live with every single day. It's not a a sort of a special category for only a few people who have that kind of heart about them. Now, the one who claims to be in the light and yet treats his brothers and sisters like this is not in the light. That person is in the darkness, and there's a very simple reason for that. It is not possible to love Jesus Christ and also to hate what Jesus Christ loves. To love Jesus Christ is to love what He loves. And it's to hate only the things that He hates. And He does hate some things. If we are caught hating the things that Jesus Christ loves, it's proof that we're not very well connected with Him, right? It's just a simple fact of the matter. If I have fellowship with Him, love for Him, intimacy with Him, His heart is going to shape my heart so that I love what He loves and hate what He hates. And if I'm not doing that, it's proof that something is is either wrong in my fellowship or that I don't know Jesus Christ at all. Now, of course... We're believers, but we're going to fail at this all the time. We are going to hate our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the, but the point I think John is trying to make is this. If you are a true believer, the arc of your life is that love will eventually overcome the hatred. The light will eventually expel the darkness. It's not perfection that he's pointing us here to, but it is this sort of uh, uh, arc 
of our lives and which way that it's bending, either toward love or toward hate. So then in verse 10, John gives us the flip side of all of this. And he says, but listen, if you are walking in love towards your brothers and sisters, then it's a sign of something great. It's a sign that you are actually abiding in the light, that you are walking in the light that the light is in you and that you have a genuine love for Him, that you know Jesus Christ and that His mind and His heart are shaping your mind and your heart. And then he says something pretty astounding. He says, if you walk in love, you walk in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in you whatsoever. That's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? If you love, there is no cause for sin in your life. There's no cause for stumbling in your life. How could he make such a wild statement as that? Well, I think he has the Lord's words in mind from, from Mark chapter 12, 28 to 34. You remember the greatest commandment? Someone had asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment in all of the Bible? And if, if I remember right, there's something like 633 commandments written down in the Old Testament. So this Old Testament scholar asks Jesus, what is the most important one of all those hundreds of commands? And he doesn't even blink an eye. He says, it's this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And then he added a second, and he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said these words. He said, the whole entire law and the prophets are summed up in these two commandments. If you will love God, and if you will love one another, you fulfill every single command of God, because all of God's commands are simply trying to get us to love. The rule of love is the rule of life. And so this is why John is trying to help us make this connection, that if I'm in fellowship with God, I will be loving my brothers and sisters who are in Christ. And if I am not loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, it's proof that something is really going wrong this way. Because the rule of love is the rule of life. And as the love of God comes into me, it must pour through me. You see, this is the basic picture that I think John is trying to paint for us, and it's a very powerful one, and so he feels free to say, if you love perfectly, there's not even a cause for you to sin in your life. So as a believer, I would think much less if I was you about obeying rules, and much more about loving. Because rules are there, they're important, I do pay attention to them, but the main thing I'm trying to do and obey the rules of God is show my love for God, and show my love for you as well. The rule of love is the rule of life. Now, as I said, we're not going to be perfect with this, right? There's nobody on the face of the earth that's going to get to a place in their life where they have arrived as a Christian and they love perfectly. They will hate. And actually, Kim and I are a good example of this right now. We have just finished going through a bit of a rough patch in our marriage. It wasn't the worst thing you could imagine us going through, but it was just kind of turbulence, if you will. And there's not a, a particular incident that I could even point to or something particular that happened and kind of say that's what happened and that was the problem. It was kind of like I was living one pattern of life and she's living another pattern of life and they were kind of being oil and water and not, not mixing together really well and it just wasn't going to work. So over a period of one or two weeks, it just, it just began to dawn on me, whatever's going on here is just not working and it's not going to work. And so when Kim and I get in a rough patch like that, what we have always done is we just talk to each other about it. We try very hard to push through our flesh. And you know, if we're being honest with each other in our marriages, sometimes your flesh doesn't want to find a solution, right? 
There are times when you want to fight. There are times when you like the drama. There are times when you want to be right and forget what the truth is. When you want to have war and not have peace. And of course these things exist in our hearts. We're sinful human beings. But we have disciplined ourselves by the grace of God to push through that and we just talk it out. And so we got together at one point and just kind of laid the issues on the table. We both kind of said how we were feeling about what was going on and why it might have been going on. But to be honest with you, we didn't make much headway in the conversation. So we had another one. And same thing. We had some pretty intense conversations. We never yelling at each other or whatever, but they were pretty intense. Some heavy things being said between the two of us, and yet it felt like not any real breakthrough was happening. And so I felt kind of exacerbated. I didn't know what to do. I I literally didn't know what to do. It would be so much easier if I or she had just done something stupid that could be dealt with and over with, you know? But when it's a pattern of life thing, it's just, it's harder. It's harder. So I didn't know what to do. When I don't know what to do, here's what I do. I go to God. And so one morning I went upstairs where I have my quiet times, I opened my Bible, I read my Bible, I opened my journal, and I just began to express to the Lord the things that were going on in our relationship and how I felt about it. I confessed to Him the things that I felt were just fleshly in me, and I, and I articulated to Him the things that I saw that I felt were legitimate. But then I said to Him, Lord, whatever it is that's really going on in this relationship right now, I want to be like You. I don't want to be like me. I don't want to get through a tough patch the way Charlie Handren would get through a tough patch. I want to do it the way Jesus Christ would do it. I want to love her as Christ would love the church, even though part of my heart doesn't want to do that right now. I confess that to you. Please make me to be like you. Please help us, Lord. So I closed my journal, and I kid you not, it wasn't more than one or two minutes later, Kim comes walking upstairs, and I'm an early riser. She is, let's just say, not an early riser. Amen, Sister Kimmy. She got up real early that morning because I think the Lord stirred her up and she came upstairs and she began to share her heart with me and confess her faults and I confessed my faults to her. And for whatever reason and whatever happened, we had our breakthrough. And we got through the season. God helped us. I just cried out to Him and He answered and He helped us. And I felt just like, you know, when I'm riding my bike and I see a big hill, I'm not a good climber. It might have something to do with this rather large belly of mine that I still have. So when I see a big hill coming, I don't necessarily look forward to it, but I just kind of settle in and begin pedaling, and and pretty soon I'm up on top of the hill, and it's that feeling of, ah, I'm done. We're, we're, We're over that hill. And that's just how I felt that morning. I knew beyond a shadow of doubt that season of turbulence was over. And now the skies were smooth again. And to this day, it's been that way. There's a fresh joy, a fresh love, a fresh like of each other. My mentor at Bethlehem always tells me, he says, I'm falling in like with my wife. He's been married to her 20 some odd years and he still likes her. And so that's how I feel about Kimmy right now. There's a fresh liking of her in my heart right now because God helped us. Now I share all of this with you, not to bring attention to us so much, but to display before you what I think John has in mind here. He is not calling us to a perfection in love, although that would be great. But he knows we're going to sin. He spent the whole first chapter teaching us what to do when we do sin. He is confident that we will fail. But what he is calling us to is a kind of life where love eventually overcomes hatred. He's calling us and saying, listen, do not settle for the bitterness in your heart towards your brothers and sisters. You're going to feel it. Don't live with it. If you love Christ, you can't live with it. 
Let the love push the hate out. Let His light shine and push the darkness out. You can't do it, but guess what? He can do it. So if you're in a season where you're struggling with hatred for somebody, my advice would be to you to do exactly what the Lord led me to do and just go to Him and say, Lord, I really do love You. I really do know You. I really do want to be like You, but help me. I don't know how to do it. If you do that, even in your imperfection, you will be showing that you are a lover of God and that you abide in the light, that you indeed know Jesus Christ. Now, John has just laid some very heavy things on the table. And I think that as a pastor who knew the people he was writing to very well, I think he began to be concerned that all the heavy things he was putting on the table were going to confuse his readers. And I think he thought that they might be concerned that John doubted their salvation, that he doubted where they stood with Christ. And so my my read on verses 12 through 14 is that John wrote those verses right where he did to sort of pause what he's saying and affirm his readers. And so let's read those verses again and I'll show you more of, of what I mean. He writes in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So John cycles through three very familial, kind of affectionate terms three times. And the terms are children, fathers, and young men. I think that what he means by these three terms is this. I think he's looking at the church and addressing new believers. He calls those children. And he's addressing mature believers. He calls those fathers. And he's addressing those who are somewhere in the middle. He calls those young men. And just as with the term brother, I think that he has both men and women in mind. Because obviously John knows that both men and women are new believers. And both men and women are mature believers. And both men and women are somewhere in between. So it pictured John writing to the whole church, not just to the men, and, and, and affirming them at every level of walking with Christ. Both a new believer, a growing believer, and a maturing believer. So let's begin looking at the first cycle. First he says, children, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven in a sort of once-for-all kind of way, and they've been forgiven for the sake of the name of God. Now, I don't normally go into Greek grammar stuff in my sermons because I think, frankly, it's kind of boring and nobody cares much about it. But every once in a while, it, it impacts the meaning of a passage so significantly that I just have to stop and explain a few things to you. All of the verbs that John uses in 12, 13, and 14 are in what the, uh, what the Greek teachers call the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is a past tense in Greek, but it's the kind of past tense that has ongoing results. So the idea is like something happened back here, whatever it was, but the results of that are going on and on and on and on. Probably the best example of this in the in the New Testament is when Jesus was hanging up on the cross. And you remember how one of the biblical writers, I don't remember which one, said that Jesus said, it is finished. In the Greek language, he actually said it in the past tense. In the Greek, Jesus said, it has been finished. 
But the power of what He did on the cross was so strong that you could actually translate His words in the present tense. It's an ongoing result. All of the verbs John uses here now in verses 12 through 14 are in that kind of tense. And so he's trying to communicate to these believers that his assessment is that they actually know Jesus Christ. And so to the children, he says, Children, I am writing to you because your sins have been forgiven in a once-for-all kind of a way. It happened in the past, but you are in Christ and you will always be in Christ. Next there in verse 13. John encourages the fathers by assuring them that they have come to know the Father in a once-for-all permanent way. And I'll tell you, as, as, as a mature believer in the church, that is the best thing that anybody could ever say to me. It doesn't matter to me if someone would compliment my preaching or my teaching or the love that they've received from me or any of that. I mean, I appreciate it, but what means the most to me is that I am connected with God Almighty. That I know God and I know His Son, Jesus Christ, and I have eternal life in Him. Nothing greater could be said about a life. In fact, maybe I'll put on my tombstone, by the grace of Jesus, He knew God. What more could be said of you? And John is trying to affirm, I believe that you are in Christ, fathers. And then he goes to the young believers and he tells them that they have overcome the evil one in a once-for-all kind of a fashion. Against this is a, again, this is a perfect verb. It's an overcoming that happened in the past and has eternal results. And I can't help but think of John 16.33 where Jesus said to His disciples, He said, listen, I'm, I'm going away now and you're going to have a lot of trouble in this world, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. And so then I think the idea is that through faith in Christ, His victory becomes our victory. And when we believe in Him in a once-for-all permanent way, we overcome the evil one. We overcome this world. And John wants these young believers to know that's you. I'm putting some heavy things before you, but I want you to know that I think you are in Christ and that you have overcome. And so now the second cycle in verse 13. Children, just like your fathers, I am writing to you to let you know that you have come to know the Father in a once-for-all permanent way. Fathers, I'm saying to you again the exact same words, and yes, I know I'm repeating myself because I want you to get it. You have come to know Him who is from the beginning. Hallelujah! Young men, I want you to know, young women, young believers, maturing people, you've got a long way to go, but you're on the path with Christ. You love Him. You're pressing into the kingdom. I want you to know that in Jesus you are strong. Iskuras is the word in Greek. You're strong. And the Word of Jesus Christ is abiding in you. It's protecting you. It's giving you light. It's guiding you. It's giving you power and all the wisdom that you need. And you have overcome the evil one. Beloved, I feel just certain that the pastoral heart of John wrote these verses to affirm the believers and say to them, yes, I am saying some very heavy things to you that might cause you to doubt your very salvation, but I am convinced of better things in your case. I am convinced that you are in Christ. Now let's get back to the flow of thought. Now that you know how I feel about you, now that you know my assessment of you, let's get back into the flow of thought. If I was the Apostle John writing to this church, I would write the exact same words because that is how I feel about you too. You are in Christ. 
I have seen the fruit of Christ in so many of your lives, in so many ways, and it gives me great joy. And so I think you should put yourselves in the place of John's original readers, because honestly, I think you're very, very much like them, and he would affirm you, even as he has affirmed them. Now with that, he goes on finally in verses 15 to 17 to do one more thing. These verses are not disconnected from his thought earlier in the chapter. They complete the thought in this way. John is saying, if you want to love one another as you ought to love one another, you have to let go of the love of the world. The love of the world interferes with your love of God. The love of the world interferes with your love of one another. So let it go. Let it go. There's a higher joy there for you. Let's read those verses together. Do not... Love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever." Beloved, to love the world is to hate God and it is to hate one another simply for this reason. To love the world is to prefer the world over God and it's to prefer the world over each other. To love the world is to put ourselves rather than God at the center of our universe and that's idolatry. So if you think about the things that John describes there, what he calls the things of the world, what are they? He said that first of all the desires of the flesh. Now that word desires is actually a, a neutral word. Even Jesus was said to have desires and the Greek writers use that same exact word. So desire in itself is not sinful. But John is talking about that kind of fleshly desire that basically wants to do anything that it has to do to gratify my personal cravings, my personal longings. So what's at the center of my thought and at the center of my affections is how I can feed all the stuff I want, whatever that stuff is. Whether it's money, power, sexuality, position, whatever. I just want to feed my flesh. That's one of the things of the world. Second thing is the desires of the eyes. And I think John simply means here both stimulation, things that we look at to gratify ourselves by being stimulated by them. And also, you know how this goes. You usually don't begin coveting after something until you look at it, right? And then usually you have to look at it and keep looking at it. You look at it and you contemplate it, and the next thing you know, you just have to have it. I just have to have that thing. And everything in my life begins revolving around getting that thing. That is the desire of the eyes. That is the desire of the flesh. And then finally he says pride in possessions. It's the kind of a dynamic where we put our hope in this earth, and what this earth is about is just getting more toys. You remember the famous 80s bumper sticker, I think it was the 80s, the one with the most toys what? Wins. The one with the most toys wins. That's how most people are living their lives. Bigger houses, bigger boats, nicer cars, more prestige, more money, more trips to Europe and wherever else. More, 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 more pride in possessions. You know what's at the heart of that? Is that my hope is in this world. That's what's at the heart of that. If I could buy my own island, that would be great. Why? Because my hope is in this world and it's all the hope that I have. So can you see that the love of this world puts us right at the center of everything and it puts God off to the periphery. God might be someone that we acknowledge from time to time. Jeez, we might even go to church. 
But it's like this. It's my career, my house, my money, my church, my this, my this, my this, my that. My, I am in the center of this picture here. There's no way to go forward with God and live a life like that. Yes? No way. The way to go forward with God is to die to our love for this world, to die to our passion for the things of this world, and to put God at the center of the throne where He belongs. God is the ruler of the universe, period. No matter what we say. But God is also the only rightful ruler of my life. He's the only one that has the position, the prestige, the wisdom, the power to belong in that place. And so the secret of living in Christ is by His grace to place God on the throne. Love God more than you love everything and all the rest of this stuff is just going to fall in place. Now listen, we enjoy some things in the world. God said in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that He has given us all things to enjoy. To be a Christian is not to like stop enjoying everything in this earth. It's just that there's an order here. And if we're to go forward, we simply must get the order right. What's more, if you're to get the order right with people, you must also let go of the things of the world. If you stop and pause and think about it, when you really give yourself to the things of this world, it puts a sort of disdain in your heart toward other people. You might spend time with them. You might even share some of your things with them. But the truth of the matter is that somehow or other, you're using them to get greater joy for yourself. You're still at the center. The only way to love people as Christ loved us is to give all that up and to love God more than we love anything else. So I pray in Jesus' name that we will do that. It is a sign of whether or not we are in Him. So, beloved, again, here's John's main point. If you want to be truly happy, enter into fellowship with God. How do you know you're in fellowship with God? Well, here's one way. You know that you have fellowship with God when you love one another through God. When the things are rightly ordered in your life, you know that you have fellowship with God. We are not talking about perfection here. Nobody can be perfect. But we're talking about the momentum of your life moving toward love rather than hate, moving toward light rather than darkness. And how I pray that that will be true of us. So I want to close today just by asking you four or five questions, and then we'll sing our closing song and we'll dwell in prayer just a little bit and let the Lord have some time to to search our hearts and help us. So here's just four or five questions. Number one, are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ right now, or are you walking in hatred toward any particular person? As I said, you won't be perfect, but the the idea is, is love pushing hate out, is light pushing darkness out? Second question, is there anyone in your life right now that you need to forgive? And I don't mean, maybe the Lord would lead you to go somewhere and think about this really, really, really deeply. But I'm talking about those sort of top of the mind things where you know exactly who I'm talking about right now. There's somebody in your life that you know you need to forgive. Who is that person? What's going on there? Why aren't you forgiving them? To flip that around, is there someone in your life that you need to ask forgiveness of? Did you offend somebody and the Lord has helped you to see that either this morning or over the last week or two? And you just need to, to get it right. Is there some... In a way, that's walking in hatred too when you know that you need to get something right and, and you're not doing it. So is there someone that you need to get right with? Is there an attitude in you? Is there a, a, a pattern of life in you that's hurting your love for God and hurting those who are around you? That's causing you to be at the center of your life rather than God and is diminishing your love for those around you? Is there a kind of a pattern? 
like there was with Kim and I. What would God say to you? What I do know is that to love Jesus Christ is to love what He loves. And what He loves more than anything besides His Father is the church that He, he spilled His blood to create. Amen? He loves His people more than we can imagine. And so let us learn to love one another. Let's pray. Oh God, how I love You for Your Word. It is so much like a surgeon's scalpel that cuts us open and exposes the deepest thoughts and intentions of our hearts. As the writer of Hebrews said, none of us can hide from Your wisdom. None of us can hide from Your lights. Not even a shadow outside right now can actually hide from the sun. The sun is just shining too bright. And in the same way, no sin can be hidden from You. And You use Your Word as a floodlight to show us that. And so I ask You, Lord, to bring relational kinds of sins to our mind. And moreover, I ask You to bring the grace of Jesus Christ to bear in our lives. Oh, Father, cause us to plead with You for forgiveness and for power and for wisdom to overcome hatred with love and overcome darkness with light. Cause us to show that we really do know You by loving one another as we should. Only You could make this happen, Father, and we acknowledge that. Outside of Your grace and power, we have no hope inside of ourselves. And so we freely acknowledge that, and we ask You to come now. Reveal things to us and help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.